series of teachings we're working through called the book. How we got it and how to get the most out of it. And the first few weeks we'll be kind of working mostly through how, how we got it. This is a bit of a different study because it, it, um, I don't know that it's the kind of thing that makes you want to dance in the aisles and say whoopee, but I do think it's something that you owe it to yourself to understand, first of all, and secondly, we live in a world where increasingly um, there are a lot of religions and a lot of sacred books. And so the reason we're working through this study... Tonight, how do we know how do we know which books are authoritative scripture? And there's different roads you can take. We had some really excellent studies uh, before Christmas that were done in the South Sanctuary, looking at textual evidences and the documents and the numbers of the documents, and it was really well done. I'm, I'm going down a different road. But it's the same topic, it's the same subject. You're staking your life on this book. No question. All the things we we say we believe morally, ethically, uh, all the hopes that we have for our future, heaven, eternal life, the second coming, what we say we know about life after death, How we got our Bible and why we believe it's true. That's a very basic issue. If there's no absolute truth, that's what we started with last week, then, then we're wasting our time here. So that's the first thing. And secondly, if there is such a thing as absolute truth, but we don't possess it, then we're still in trouble. If we don't possess absolute truth in our scriptures, then we should be looking elsewhere for truth. So how do we know we hold on to truth when we carry our Bibles? There are other religious books. There are other religious traditions. And we're going to spend several weeks on this quest, several Sunday nights. We're going to be looking at what is commonly called the the canon of Scripture. How do we know we have the right books included in our Bibles? That word canon basically reads uh, rule or norm. So when we talk about the canon of Scripture, what we're really talking about is the books that measure and regulate everything else. We're talking about the books that we will deem as Scripture, as God's Word. We have have 66 books. That Bible that you carry to church or on your iPad or your smartphone, 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. How How do we get... How do we get that number? There were other books to consider. Why don't we allow others? After all, our 
our Jewish friends, they allow for 24 books in their scriptures. Now, those 24 books include all of our Old Testament, as we'll see in a minute. But they exclude all 27 of the New Testament. Those aren't scripture at all. Our Roman Catholic friends include about 13 more books than we include. Called the Apocrypha. We don't include any of those books in our uh, Protestant evangelical Bibles. Most are from the intertestamental period, now more commonly called the Second Temple period in history. So, so why do we include the books we include, and why do we exclude the books we exclude? I think you should be able to tell people that. Those are the questions we're going to just launch into tonight. We won't get through all of them. And I want to say something else, that this is not just sort of heady intellectual, Pastor Don, I don't come to, come to church, I want to be blessed. I don't want to be coming, you're making me thinking about all this. I don't come to church to think. I just come to get blessed. Well, shame on you. We call the Bible God's word. And we mean it isn't like other books. When we read it, and when we hear it, and this is how I'm going to wrap up tonight, we, we are to hear God speaking in a way he doesn't speak in or through any other book. And every Christian should be able to back up the claim that, that this Bible, and not any other collection of religious writings, this Bible alone is God's word. And so, I think we all need to know how we got here. How we come to this staggering conclusion. So let's keep that big picture in mind, okay, as we start through this study tonight. So you're all awake? You okay for a little while? All right. Point number one. I want to make a broad statement, and it'll take me a little while to back this up. The Bible that Jesus used and endorsed, and I want to say quoted, included the books we have in our Old Testament and no more. Let's start there. This isn't irrelevant to your Christian life. I mean, this point that I want to make here is it's just a starting point, but it's a very important one. The point I'm making here is the Jewish Bible of Jesus' day, the Bible Jesus studied, the Bible he quoted, he was always quoting scripture, he had it memorized. And that wasn't just because he was God and it was easy for him to memorize. Jesus worked at learning the scriptures. But that Bible that Jesus studied and preached from and quoted and read, it contained exactly 24 books. The Bible that Jesus used contained three sections. He talked about them. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Now, of course, those were the Jewish scriptures. They, they, don't, they don't call their scriptures the Old Testament, of course, because as far as they're concerned, there is no such thing as the New Testament. 
So their books are the scriptures, period. They don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah and the New Testament record of Jesus and his life and his work. They don't recognize that as scripture at all. But here are the books in their scripture. I said there were 24 of them. And they include, this is important, heads up, their 24 books include exactly the 39 books you have in your Old Testament. Because they're divided differently. The Jewish scriptures include the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then the prophets, that's Joshua, Judges, Samuel, first and second in one book. Kings, first and second in one book. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all 12 in one book. And then finally, their scriptures include the writings, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ruth, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, uh, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, one book, Chronicles, first and second, one book, equaling 24 books. But the same books that we have in our Old Testament. Now, there's something I'm going to ask you to take note of. I'm going to ask you to take note of it now, not showing you why it matters right now. So you're going to just hear this as just an arbitrary request on my part, and I want you to file something away, because in a few minutes, you're going to see that it's very important. For now, make your mind mentally alert to the fact that while the books are the same books in the Jewish scriptures and our Old Testaments, there's one very important difference, and it will matter. The order of the books is entirely different. Your Old Testament, my Old Testament, ends with the book of Malachi. The Jewish scriptures end with the book of Chronicles, first and second together. Just remember that, okay? Mental note, okay, Pastor Don said, ours, Malachi, Jewish scriptures, Chronicles. Everybody got it? I want you to see why that'll matter in a minute. Point number two. So the Bible Jesus used was the Old Testament that you have, but in a different order, because ours end with Malachi and theirs ends with? Very good. The Bible Jesus used and endorsed didn't contain any of the apocryphal books. Now, our Roman Catholic friends include about 13 books written after the close of our Old Testament in the era, roughly, roughly between the Old and New Testaments, usually referred to as the time of Second Temple Judaism. Why don't we consider these books a part of Scripture? Clearly, they aren't included in the Jewish scripture. We've already seen the 24 books included there in different order from our 39. The apocryphal books include, depending on, on which... Uh, well, I don't want to get into that. The roughly include 1st and 2nd Esdras, Tobit, Judith, the addition to the book of Esther, the wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, the letter of Jeremiah... The Prayer of Azariah, Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, The Prayer of Manasseh, and First and Second Maccabees. Now we come to something interesting. 
the reason our Old Testament is ordered in a different sequence from the Jewish scriptures, same books but a different sequence, is that our Old Testament follows the order not of the Hebrew text, but it follows the order of the Greek translation of the Hebrew text called the Septuagint. And stay with me here. The Greek Septuagint originally included the apocryphal books. Now, now think about that just for a minute. It's not irrelevant. That means that it must have been, it must have been a very conscious decision to remove those books from the Septuagint and return only to those included in the Hebrew text. I want to argue that that's a good decision. It was the right decision. And I'm arguing that they did the right thing when they edited the Old Testament down to the original 24 books of the Hebrew scriptures. Now, if you're sitting here thinking at all, you've got to be saying to yourself, well, that's nice that you feel that way, Pastor Don, but who's to say who's right? That's a fair question, isn't it? So you got this text that has them, you got this text that had them, and, and it's removed. You say it's a good decision. Is that all we've got? Flip a coin? Who's right? Who's wrong? Should they be? Shouldn't they be? How can we know this with any degree of scriptural certainty? Now, our Old Testament ends with Malachi. The Hebrew scriptures, same books, end with who cares? I want to show you why it matters now. So now we're getting to, should these apocryphal books be included or shouldn't they? Who knows? Does Jesus say anything about this? I rarely hear this argument used. And it seems to me it's such a simple and good one. Luke 11, 49 to 51 not a text that anybody refers to ever on this subject, and I think it's the best one in the whole Bible. Remember, I think Jesus himself endorses the present Old Testament minus the Apocrypha. And I think you have proof of it, and I want to start with this text, though it takes a little bit of thinking. Can, you, can we go together tonight down the road? All right, Hebrews 11, 49 to 51. Therefore, also, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets, and if I had my little thingamajiggy, I would circle all the prophets, all, every one of them, okay? The blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Who are all the prophets? Now he's going to tell us. From the blood of Abel, we all know the story of Cain and Abel, right? To the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Now, you put your finger under those important words in verse 50. The blood of all the prophets. Jesus tells us he's very deliberately including all of the prophets in his remarks. And then he does something else very important. He defines who he means by all the prophets. He bookends them. 
He starts at the beginning with Abel. He's the very first one to die, recorded in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis, of course, is the very first book of the Hebrew Scriptures. And then Jesus lists a man called Zechariah in verse 51. That's the last one. So Abel, bookend one. Zechariah, the end, the last prophet. Who perished, 51 says, between the altar and the sanctuary. But there's a problem. Zechariah isn't the last prophet to be martyred chronologically in the Old Testament. That's not a guess. We know that. Chronologically, the last prophet to be killed in the Old Testament is a man called Uriah. And this matters. It's not just irrelevant stuff. The last prophet chronologically is a man called Uriah, the son of Shemaiah. And his story is told in Jeremiah 26... 20 to 23. Let me just read it to you. There was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah from Kareth Jerem. He prophesied against this city and against this land in words like those of Jeremiah. And when King Jehoiakim, remember that name, with all of his warriors and all the officials, heard his words, so the king heard this prophecy, the king sought to put him to death. Uriah, when he heard of it, he was afraid and he fled and escaped to Egypt. So he takes off. Then King Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men, Elnathan, the son of Akbor, and others with him, and they took you, so they catch him. They took Uriah from Egypt, brought him to King Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword, dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. So here's what we know. Jehoiakim, everybody knows, just history knows. He reigned in the late 500s BC. This is long after the death of Zechariah. Jesus said the last prophet, Zechariah. Well, this is way after that. What are we going to do with this? Why does Jesus choose the death of Zechariah to close the season of all the prophets? Abel in Genesis and Zechariah at the end. I want to tell you why. Because the story of Zechariah, guess which book of the Bible it's covered in? Chronicles. The story is found in 2 Chronicles. And which is the last book in the Hebrew Bible? Chronicles. So the story of Zechariah and his death is included in 2 Chronicles 24, 20 and 21. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says the Lord, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. People don't like hearing stuff like that. They conspired against him by command of the king. They stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Right there, right in the court of the house of the Lord, they stoned this guy to death. That, Jesus says, all the prophets, beginning with Abel, ending in Zechariah, and what Jesus is doing, pay attention, he's saying, there's your scriptures, Genesis, Chronicles. Is there room for apocryphal books? No. Who says so? Jesus does. Jesus does. It's right there in the text. 
Remember, Jesus' Bible didn't end with Malachi. The Bible Jesus used ended with 2 Chronicles. And here we have this ringing, resounding endorsement and a limitation of the sacred text to those bookends. Genesis at the beginning, Chronicles at the close. And I'm arguing Jesus did not recognize in any way, shape, or form the apocryphal writings. He clearly places these limiters on all the prophets who they were. And it lines up with the Hebrew scriptures exactly. Jesus very clearly says, if you include all the prophets, you'll begin with Genesis and you'll end with Chronicles. And that excludes all books that today we don't have in our Old Testament. It is true, it is true that there are some other writings referred to in your Bible. There are other writings quoted in your Bible. Sometimes these writings include pagan poets. Paul talks about them in Acts 17, 28. Sometimes they include quotes from intertestamental writings like Jude 14 and 15. Sometimes they're just commonly known sayings and expressions like Titus 1 and 12. But those sayings, those quotes are never called scripture. They're never quoted as scripture. This is very different from the way the scriptures are referred to when, when the authority of doctrinal belief and instruction in the truth is being discussed. Jesus claimed consistently that the Bible he studied was the original Hebrew text with the same three divisions as the 24 Old Testament books. Look at Luke 24, 44. Jesus is the speaker. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And you notice those Three divisions, and, and all scholars are virtually agreed that that third division, the writings, is here called the Psalms, simply because it's by far the, the largest book, the most dominant book in the writings, and so Jesus calls it the Psalms. Notice also the highly significant words of Paul to Timothy on the value of being trained in the Scriptures. This is a text most people refer to, but it's an important one. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. Paul writes to Timothy, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting, the way Paul, like we talked about in Hebrews this morning, Paul's talking about the the scriptures, all there was, the Old Testament scriptures. And he says there's a purpose in those scriptures. They're to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what they're all about, Paul says. All scripture, verse 16, is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. So, so Paul knew there was an accepted body of texts they were collected. They were put together. They were called the scriptures. They were called the sacred writings. Now, notice when he writes to Timothy, he doesn't list all the books. He just talks about 
the sacred writings, verse 15, the scriptures in verse 16. And the reason is by that time, Paul knew the collection of texts and he knew Timothy knew the collection of texts. He knew he didn't have to list the books. It was accepted by then. It was understood which books were scripture. The same ones Jesus used. The same 24 books, your Old Testament. That collection was the Jewish scriptures that Timothy's Jewish grandmother, Lois, taught him. His Jewish mother, Eunice, taught him and had trained him in. They're the 24 books Paul acknowledged just as Jesus acknowledged as the scriptures. All right. We've just kind of introduced this topic, and I'm not, I'm not going to go a lot further. I'm hoping that by the time we're done, every person who calls this their church home will be able to explain to anyone who asks why we call this book we carry to church the scriptures. How do we know which book should be in, which book should be out? There are solid reasons for building our lives on it. Now, we've only reached the level of establishing the canon of the Old Testament. But already, already you can see God at work. Jesus, God the Son, gives his divine assessment of these recorded words. The scriptures. He, he endorses the very same books. The apostles quote and acknowledge these same books as the sacred writings, the scriptures. So now to apply it. Wonderful, isn't it, to be able to say, I know why we have the books we have. And, and you can write a little paragraph. Here's a description Abel, Zechariah, Genesis to Chronicles, the 24 books in the Hebrew scriptures, the same books Jesus quotes and endorses. I, I get it. I know why we have the books we have there. I, I get what you're saying tonight, Pastor Don, but that's not all. That's not all. Because when you have that kind of endorsement of the scriptures, it begs the question, what do you hear what do you hear when you hear the scriptures? What do, you, what do you hear when you read your Bible? What do you hear when someone opens up a Bible and starts to unpack an Old Testament text? Paul writes these words to the church at Thessalonica. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, and we also thank God constantly for this. Paul said, Here, here's what I'm thankful for. That when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is. The word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now, Paul's point isn't just that the Bible really is God's word. That's true, but that's not his point. His point is, because it's God's word, it must be heard as God's word if it's really going to work in believers. Unless you 
hear it as God's word. It is God's word on paper, but it's not going to do in your heart what it's supposed to do. In other words, that word believers, where, where he says, um, you heard it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. When he says believers, he means people who actually believe the Bible is God's word. Not just that, they hear it. They respond to it like it's God's word, as though God were actually speaking to them. That's what makes the word work in those who hear it in a church service like this. If you're reasonably young, you might be inclined merely to hear the voice of your parents' religious beliefs in church. You might think this is just your family's religious tradition. Or you might just come to church thinking you're going to hear some moral advice. Something to give you a bit more zip, a little more purpose, uh, better self-image. But, but do you hear God speaking to you? This is different from what your professor gives you in your university class. This is different from however help you might get from any counselor or psychologist or psychiatrist. This is different from what you might get in any classroom setting. Do you hear God speaking? Has that cutting, unbendable edge of the mighty sword of the Spirit, has it somehow grown dull in your in your hearing, God never gives advice. He reveals. He commands. There's nothing optional about God's word. It's life itself. Here's one of my favorite texts from the scriptures of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 30, 19 and 20. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death. They've just received the law. I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that your Lord swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's an ancient word, but it has never changed in this respect. Here's what is always at stake whenever we hear God's word, in whatever way we hear it. Here's what is always at stake, life and death. Choose life. Do you know how many times in churches across North America and around the world, somebody, somebody very gifted, maybe not as gifted, someone's going to open up the Bible and someone's going to speak from God's word and there'll be people by the multiplied thousands in churches all over the land who will choose death instead of life. They didn't mean to. They just won't hear God. And 
life starts to unravel and people wonder what happened. How did things go so wrong? How did someone's life get so messed up? Why don't they come to church anymore? They chose death. God spoke. It's almost, if it weren't so sad, it's almost humorous. God's exams aren't really that hard in setting before you life and death. Oh, by the way, you should choose life. Can you imagine a game show on TV? Door number one, door number two. One's got nothing, one's got the car. Choose door number two. That's where the car is. Uh, I don't know. I think, uh, yeah, one. I'm going to go with one. God says, I'm, I'm setting before you. I'm setting before you life. I'm setting before you blessing. I'm setting before you fruitfulness. Life and death. It's not like God's up in heaven just waiting to curse people. It's when you choose life, life is what unfolds. When you ignore life, death is the only other option. Setting before you life and death. Oh, by the way, choose life. Obey everything this book says about marriage and sexuality. Take it with you on your dates. Obey everything this book says when you're figuring out what you're going to watch in terms of entertainment. Choose life when this book says don't, don't just live for material success and material advancement. Don't just sell your house and move somewhere far away because, gee, I can save money. That's not a good enough reason. Choose life. Choose life. It's a wonderful thing to be able to prove these are the books. It's another thing to get life from them. That's what we want, right, church? All of our days, choose life. Let's pray together.